This week on the show, we show you a good time to use OpenZFS log and when not. OpenBSD 7.0 is out and we cover what's new in there. OpenBSD and Valent is supposed to happen and we provide a little bit of information about that. UBM faults are yielding significant performance boosts on OpenBSD as well. But there is even more in this episode of BSD now. BSD Now, episode 426, OpenBSD 7.0 Hero. Recorded on the 20th of October 2021. This episode of BSD Now is brought to you by Tarsnap. Go to tarsnap.com slash bsdnow for the online backup for the truly paranoids. Hello, I'm your host, Benedict Reuschling. And I'm Tom Jones. Welcome. We have a new, fresh recording for you prepared and with... Great news this week, as always, as the BSD community is providing us every week. Uh, but before we get into that, we want to mention that we uh, put our heads together and thought about the interview that we had with Michael W. Lucas a while ago about, you know, cash flow for creators and stuff. And he recommended to us that we create a little tip jar. And so Alan um, put this up and created a Patreon for BSD now. It's uh, patreon.com slash bsdnow, very easy to remember. And there you can, if you so desire, and if you like the episode or the whole show, the format, the moderators, maybe, um, <laughs> whatever you like, you can uh, leave us money and uh, say thank you this way. Uh, it's not a necessity, uh, but you can check out uh, what we provide there at Patreon, and maybe you have a dollar or so available here or there. Yeah, and we're, we're not going to change the, the, the format of the show at all, but we've added some some perks to, to hopefully make you want to give us some money. It'd be nice to it'd be nice to get some coffees from this. <laughs> yeah, the perks are nice, I think, or we thought they would be interesting for people. Let us know in the comments or send us an email to uh, feedback at bsdnow.tv and then uh, we'll know whether we're on the right track or if people totally hate this or... <laughs> agree to it. All right, let's jump into the headlines. This week, we have news from Clara Systems, an article. Uh, many of those have already been written. This one is called What Makes a Good Time to Use OpenZFS, the Slog, and When You Should Avoid It. So this reads, uh, a common OpenZFS support question is, do I need a slog? And if so, which type of device should I use for the slog? In order to answer that question, we need to examine how OpenZFS handles the right requests to disk. So then there's the uh, question, of course, to synchronous or asynchronous writes and the ZIL. There are several moving parts when it comes to writing data to disk. There are two types of writes, asynchronous and synchronous. An asynchronous write provides immediate confirmation when it receives a write request even though the write is still pending and hasn't been committed to disk yet. This frees up the application from waiting for the confirmation and can provide a performance boost for applications with non-critical writes. Asynchronous writes, on the other hand, those guarantee integrity by not providing information of the write until the data has actually been written to the disk. This type of write is used to consistency critical applications and uh, the protocols such as, for example, databases, virtual machines, and NFS, you would remember, uh, uh, or think that this is important, and it definitely is. Uh, so all pending writes are stored in the ZFS write cache, which is located in RAM, that is volatile, as we all know, 
at least <laughs> in current technology, uh, meaning its contents are lost when the system reboots or loses power. We've all been there. So to maintain data integrity for synchronous writes, each pool has its own ZFS intent lock, the ZIL, ZIL, residing on a small area of storage disk. Pending synchronous writes are stored in RAM and are also locked in the ZIL so that the disk knows that they are actually there. ZFS is a transactional file system. It writes to storage using transaction groups, which are created in sets uh, or in set intervals every five seconds. These groups are atomic, meaning that the entire contents of a transaction group must be committed to disk before it is considered a complete write. Okay, so now what happens if a failure, such as a power loss causing a system reboot, occurs? Everything is in RAM, including all pending transactions and asynchronous write requests are gone. If there was an interrupted transaction group performing a write, that transaction group is incomplete and the data on disk is now out of date by five seconds, which can be a big deal on a busy server. However, keep in mind that pending synchronous writes are still on disk in the ZIL. On system startup, the ZFS reads the ZIL and replace any pending transactions in order to commit those writes to disk. That sounds like a pretty good system. Pending synchronous writes still get written and no more than five seconds worth of asynchronous writes are lost. So. Then the question is, why a slog? Having the ZIL reside on the storage disk can result in contention. In other words, ZIL writes and reads must compete with other disk activity. These can cause some performance issues, especially on a system with a lot of small random writes. On a busy pool limited by disk seek speeds, ZIL performance gets slower as the pool activity increases. Huh. It makes sense to offload the ZIL activity to a faster media, such as the SSD or NVMe that you have laying around, for pools with a large amount of synchronous writes. But in ZFS, you do that by adding this uh, lock virtual device to the pool. So this is a keyword in the ZPool create. Uh, this lock device is known as the separate intent lock, SLOG, S-L-A-O-G. If multiple devices are mirrored when the SLOG is created, writes will be load balanced between these devices. And so keep the following points in mind before creating a SLOG. The first one, the SLOG requires at least one dedicated physical device that is only used by the ZIL nothing else. Uh, you should mirror your slog devices for the redundancy there. Uh, and not every pool has to have a slog. So regardless of whether or not you create a slog, each pool still has its own ZIL. Creating a slog just moves the ZIL from pool storage to the dedicated device. And last, neither the ZIL nor the slog make a difference when pending asynchronous writes, which are always stored in volatile RAM. If you don't have any applications that use synchronous writes, you don't need a slog that is never used. And then there's a section about what kind of uh, type of device should people use for a slog. So people uh, think they need a lot of disk space for it. But when purchasing a slog device, you want something that is non-volatile and battery backed. It does not need to be large as the ZIL only needs to have enough capacity to contain all the synchronous writes that have not yet been flushed from RAM to disk. 16 gigabytes to 64 gigs is sufficient. Uh, for a busy server with a lot of writes, a general rule of thumb for calculating the size is the maximum amount of write traffic per second times 15. So in addition, you need to balance always the magic triangle, which has four sides in this case, the, the cost, the speed, the latency, and the endurance. And they provide an example for a slog device, which could be small, a separate hard disk, uh, but it won't be fast like an SSD, but it has endurance, and you probably already have a stack of small disks lying around. So that is... Um, one of the considerations. Then I talk a little bit about uh, SSDs, like um, chip technology there, like MLC, SLC, and so 
that is uh, also taken into consideration. And putting it all together at the end, summarizing the uh, article is OpenZFS provides several mechanisms to ensure the data gets written to disk on a busy system that usually or utilizes synchronous writes. Moving this to faster slog media can reduce contention and might yield a performance boost. When, per, uh, when purchasing, purchasing a slog device, remember that endurance and reliability comes at a cost. And uh, yeah, if you want to discuss this further with the uh, Clara Systems folks, they provide links to uh, get in touch. That's a that's a great article. Um, do you, do you know any ZFS internals, Benedict? Uh, not too deep down. I just had my own experience with the Zill uh, that was coming from not local storage from uh, but from iSCSI <laughs> from another machine. So it was good until the machine had to reboot either the machine exporting the iSCSI device or the machine that imported it. And then the pool was like, hey, I had this device last time when I rebooted. Where is it going? Or where, where, where did it went? Where, where did you put it? <laughs> well, the iSCSI is not ready at boot when the pool comes uh, active, right? So it's missing its lock device. And so I had to do a couple of, um, you know, crazy hoops to jump through. And I will provide a, a FreeBSD Journal article how to... Uh, how I went into this, how I solved it, and how things are now. It's it's definitely interesting. Little hint, don't do this at work. <laughs> Actually, cool. Um, so I, I think if I understand this right, that the S-log is used to give you um, resilience against power failure rather than waiting for the expensive ZFS operations. Yeah. And the ZIL does the same thing. So it's like a scratch area for synchronous writes. Yeah, it, it gets cleaned out once yeah, the... and then it gets flushed out. So you have the top layer where the memory says, hey, please write this stuff, and the Zill acknowledges it, and then it can trickle down to slower storage eventually, but then the application don't have to but, wait but that as long. it's doing it, so because it's used for resilience, the write is still in RAM, and so there's no point having a big S-log because it's just, it's sat in RAM anyway. If you have a big S, like, so yeah. never any point having an S-log bigger than your RAM because it, it's good. Yeah, sit. exactly. If you look at the... Uh, the zpool uh, iostat minus v that gives you individual disks for your um and and in the disk lock or in the zil section or in the for the uh, disk that is your zil it will only have a couple of if you have to repeat it like every five seconds output um of the zpool status or the iostat it will only gives you oh 15k 64k 8k or one megabyte maybe but nothing and after that it's it's uh back to zero again so in between those, it gets cleared again and waits for the That's next really cool. I/O. I mean, there are, there are NVRAM devices. Like, they, they, I read a paper like six years ago where they used NVRAM devices um, for doing networking stuff. If you could get like a non-volatile RAM stick, you could have a super mm -hmm. fast S log. Like, fly. Yeah, that is the. Uh, I think the OpenZFS folks have thought about this. Like, in the future, we will not have. Oh, let's reboot the machine to clear the RAM. No, we'll <laughs> then be able to hopefully reconstruct what is left in RAM and, you know, put these links back together so that people have their um, their caches back. Yeah, it's, uh, it's going to be so chaotic when uh, these become more common yeah. as people expecting them to be cleared on a reboot. And nope, now the RAM ain't going away. Yeah, yeah. Especially the operating systems have to cope with that. Like, why is this memory region full? I am suspecting that there is something or there's nothing there to, to write to. And the, there is important stuff in there that you can reuse upon the next reboot. And so the question is whether you overwrite this stuff and just be forget about what what happened last time, 
or reuse parts of these because the cache is still warm in, in a sense. So yeah, this is uh, interesting to observe in, in future what, what's happening when the hardware is, is there and, and affordable. <laughs> okay, next up we have um, a release announcement from the OpenBSD project. Um, as of the 14th of October, which is six days ago as we record, uh, OpenBSD 7.0 has been released. This is the uh, 51st release of OpenBSD which I think is 24 years, which is oh, yeah. a long time to be doing a project. Uh, it comes with a song as normal, and the songs are always good to look up, um, and and great artwork. Um, the Starry Night, isn't it, Benedict? It's like a play. Yeah. It is, yeah. Uh, so it's, it's really <laughs> nice artwork, and I've, I actually think they have posters available for this. But more interestingly, we have um, lots of technical features that have been added. And so OpenBSD 7.0 comes with new and extended platforms. Um, it adds a new RISC V, RISC V, RISC V64 platform, so supporting the RISC, I can't remember what it's called now, RISC V architecture. RISC V, um, I say for RISC V. Which is a, a, a open core design, open ISA uh, with loads of open software support and hardware is starting to actually appear. And so OpenBSD got support for this. Uh, we covered uh, a number of the articles talking about this because it was two master's projects, there's two student projects that did the initial port. And so it's really cool. Um, the yep. ARM64 platform support has improved with a, a ton of changes, but really notably there's support for Apple Silicon Max, um, which is not ready for general use, but has added um, support for booting disks with GPT. Um, and then a bunch of um, Apple based, so APL prefixed and designware uh, sourced um drivers that support things like um a usb3 controller um nvme apple gpio um apple sierra uh, spmi power management uh, for the rtcs um and then there are more uh device driver support so there's uh, mue for the ethernet on the raspberry pi model b plus um and type c phi controller found on the rockchip rk3399 which is the system on chip in the Pinebook Pro, the Pine Phone Pro, which was announced um, last week, uh, and the Pine Rock 64 as uh, some of this hardware. So there's loads of great hardware support. Um, changes to other architectures. So OpenBSD has a, a, a support for a lot of architectures, especially going back in time. And so their Mac PC, Mac Power PC port got updated to use LDLLD. Um, they fixed support for uh, PowerPC machines selecting non-Altavec code paths on Mac PowerPC, which I'm sure doesn't mean a lot to a lot of people, but I think it's really cool. Um, yeah. Improved support for doing um, speed step, more device drivers. Um, uh, the Luna 88K port is forced to use the serial console when no graphics are found. Um, so lots of improvement for um, platforms. There's a big list of improvements for the kernel. There's um, a big effort to unlock part of the VM fault handler on i386. Um, enabled DT, which I don't know what it is. I think it is device tree. Um, dynamic tracer. Oh, so they enabled a dynamic tracer oh. the generic kernels for AMD64, ARM64, i386, Spark64, and PowerPC. There's one architecture that's uh, an, uh, the odd one out there, isn't there? Um, kernel probe provider for dynamic tracing. So OpenBSD is starting to get um, 
CTF-based dynamic tracing, so um, eBPF or BPF as it's called now, or Dtracer are analogs in, in Linux and FreeBSD for dynamic tracing. So it's a great way to inspect what's going on inside the operating system. Um, TPM 2.0 device support, uh, improvements to Hibernate. Um, there's the first note, which is change the printing of Hibernate image size from bytes to megabytes is a real subtle um, point. And then the next one increased Hibernate write-out speed. I think they reduced it by like a factor of 10. There was a massive speed improvement to uh, increased performance for, for Hibernate, which is really good to see. I think Resume got faster as well from Hibernate. Um, stuff about KQ and Kano and Futex. Um, they fixed a kernel crash in TTY, which is a great place to have a crash. It's like an old Unix system. Mm. Uh, there've been SMP improvements. Um, so PMAP extract has been made MP safe on HPPA and AMD64, which is not a combination of architectures you see a lot anymore. Um, they've added macros. There's like a big, I think there's an article we cover later. There's a big set of work trying to improve, um, multi-processing, been improvements in DRM, VMM, um, and then a ton. Uh, so some new userland features. So they imported timeout from NetBSD. Uh, I actually saw some discussion that NetBSD imported timeout from FreeBSD. And so they've like done a roundabout <laughs> import all the way back to get timeout. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> BSD code sharing. It's, it's really funny for me is I actually thought FreeBSD didn't have timeout. So I've just never been using it in the shell scripts I've had to run on FreeBSD and Linux. Maybe it's Linux that doesn't have timeout um, in, in normal installs. Uh, they added um, <laughs> extra options to open rsync, um, improved PS, um, improvements to MG, which is their tiny Emacs-like text editor. And then a ton of... Um, bug fixes in user space and user land and a ton of um, hardware and driver bug fixes. And then some new and improved hardware support, including the um, IX um, Ethernet drivers fixed on AMD64 and um, uh, RISC-5-64. I have to check what we're talking. Yeah, that is the IX Ethernet driver. Um, imported drivers from NetBSD to help support on the Raspberry Pi 3 Model B. Um, added support for more Realtek Ethernet devices. Um, yeah, there's just a ton of stuff here. I can't, I can't read everything. It'll take forever. It's, it's um, a lot. Oh, yeah. one, one good thing, which is, would be, um, sad to overlook is there've been like massive improvements in the support for, um, 802.11, um, so Wi-Fi and 802.11n, which I don't actually know what is called in modern Wi-Fi parlance anymore, Wi-Fi 4. Um, and so there's there's threads on the Fediverse every so often from um, Stefan Sperling um, because there was a hacker news comment that uh, OpenBSD could only do 100 kilobits on Wi-Fi and he keeps posting these things of going to fast.com and doing like 180 megabit. Um, and so their Wi-Fi stack getting getting pretty good. Um, yeah, definitely go and check out the release announcement. And at the bottom of the release announcement, it will tell you how to um, install and how to update for your for your architectures of choice. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's definitely a lot. And uh, yeah, instructions are available to update. And congratulations, OpenBSD, to another timely a release. first release. Yeah, it's it, that's definitely a record, yeah. And definitely check it out and uh, report back if you are uh, liking the new release. Okay, we have news for you also in the news roundup here. 
in our OpenBSD themed uh, story, we can continue here a little bit with OpenBSD and Wayland. So we found this at sizeofvoid.org. Why didn't I think of that domain? Um, <laughs> here it goes um, that uh, the last few days, they jumped into the next rabbit hole and would like to share some thoughts. With the helpful patches from FreeBSD, they were able to quickly achieve success and port the Wayland base applications and libraries. So this is the Wayland 1.19.0, Wayland-protocols 1.23, and Wayland uh, utils 1.00. And we have a screenshot from a tweet that um, gives us the um, output here, seeing that it seems to find ah, the DMESH output. A couple of things detected there. And let's see. Uh, after this quick one, uh, they were all excited. Hey, this works way too well. Time to become skeptical. But first, let's jump into the wonderful world of KDE and Qt5. Porting Qt Valent, QValent, and Plasma Framework with Valent enabled much easier than thought. They figured even if this whole Valent construct doesn't work, fine. Just resolving the dependencies is enough for them to port the KDE Plasma desktop to OpenBSD. At the point, uh, or at that point, they were then they wanted to build KWIN and Sway. Uh, they saw the full extent of the horror. Wayland is a drop in the bucket. We need to port the following libraries and applications libinput, libudev, and libevdev. When they read udev in the context of OpenBSD, their stomach turned. Welcome to the rabbit hole. Welcome to hell. But there seems to be a way out. A shortcut? Maybe. DevD from FreeBSD. Uh, so if they could port DevD to OpenBSD or replicate the functionality, and then they would have a good chance. They would have that the possibility to port libudev DevD, then that could solve the missing udev problem under OpenBSD, which would be very helpful for porting all other new stuff. Uh, it would be worth it, uh, wouldn't it? Yeah. So the work is on GitHub, uh, github.com slash size of voids, and then there's the whip ports tree, and then uh, subtree Wayland. So check it out. Maybe you can help or test, and that would helpfully, uh, hopefully, one day allow uh, Wayland to run on OpenBSD. Yeah, I think supporting DevD is, is going to be a lot of work. I think there's a a lot of FreeBSDisms that are, are probably caught up in there, but I, I wish them all the luck because you need some things to make um, the porting effort a bit easier. Yeah, and I know that uh, on the FreeBSD side, um, Tom Rhodes is working. On, or has a review open at the moment for a uh, FreeBSD handbook uh, article about setting up Wayland and some of the compositors and you know some utilities. And so that's still in review at the moment. And we have currently a um, doc slash going on with the pending release of the next FreeBSD version. But as soon as that is lifted, we will probably have a handbook section about Wayland so people can also try it out on FreeBSD. Yeah, it'd be really interesting to see how other BSDs solve the the tight Linux coupling that is, is sort of inherent in these desktop environments. Yeah, that needs to be, that's that's the hell and the ugly part, but uh, hopefully the Wayland is enticing enough to uh, let people uh, find a solution for it. Okay, next up we have uh, another OpenBSD story, and this is on undeadly.org, and it was contributed by Peter uh, Hanstein, and it comes from the no fault of UVM department, <laughs> and it is titled Unlocking UVM Faults, yield significant performance boost. And so, um, Peter writes, in a recent message to tech at, uh, 
Martin Pichot, MPI at, wrote about analysis of kernel lock contention. We reproduce the messages here, reformatted with his permission. Unlocking UVM, uh, editor's note, uh, UVM is the virtual memory system, uh, fault makes build time decrease a lot and improve the overall latency of mixed user land workload. In other words, it gives a smoother feeling for desktop usage. It is now possible to do make-j17, so run 17 make jobs, and watch a HD video at the same time. Uh, I imagine this is on like a 16 core machine rather than a one core machine. Yeah, but that's a good, <laughs> that's a good pastime, you know, let this compiler run for a while while I'm watching this video. Uh, so, so what next? The the four flame graphs below were captured with Patricat during the, I'm going to say the weekend, it's weekend? WE, I think is an abbreviation. We used its desktop 16 core ARM64 machine. Oh, that's cool. I wonder what hardware that is. Uh, with AMD GPU, they all include the UVM unlocking diff. And one also includes the poll select diff, um, unlocked SO wake up. Web browsing has been performed with Iridium. And I knew what the Iridium web browser was this morning, and I can't remember what it is now. Uh, building a kernel with 17 jobs is hard, um, but only 30% of CPU time is spent in user land. Overall spinning time is 40%. I think that means 40% of the time is spent waiting on locks. 18% um, on kernel lock, 10% on scheduler lock, 12% on UVM's page queue lock. Those numbers add up to 40%. The UVM yeah. unlocking diff made the contention shift from the kernel lock to the global page queue lock and the per AMAP read-write lock. Due to the high contention on shared uh, AMAP in this workload, many threads go to sleep at the same time, which makes some contention appear on the schedule lock. Oh, okay. Uh, the scheduler lock is not yet a problem, yeah, but it will be. Uh, what is happening here shows that our uh, RW lock implementation relying on a global sleep queue is suboptimal. However, in UVM's uh, VM object lock case, we should hopefully turn many of the existing write locks into read locks. NetBSD is already doing that, and this should be good enough to prevent some threads uh, going to sleep, thus avoiding schedule lock or any global lock for sleep queue contention. Contention on the page queue lock could also be reduced by revisiting adding per UVM page locking. 10% uh, of the CPU time is idle. It's hard to say how much of this is because of the scheduler and its interaction with the high uh, spinning time. However, it's worth investigation. Uh, syscalls that need the kernel lock for this workload fall into two categories. Uh, and then there are... Um, there are four flame graphs attached to this article, and so they're always good to look at because they can show you a breakdown of where time is spent. And it goes um, a bit deeper into um, where things are spending time. Um, the conclusion they have is unlocking UVM fault is obvious next step, and we're not finished with that yet. Making uh, poll and select work on top of the KQ subsystem will allow us to unlock um, cell, wake up, and friends. This will also help workloads with network traffic going to user land. Uh, completely unlocking poll, select, and KQ will require making uh, RW sweep with PCAPS work without uh, kernel lock. This implies uh, making signals work without kernel lock. This will also reduce contention in a few texts. Unlocking UVM fault will make it easier to unlock many UVM-related syscalls. This will help for workloads that fork a lot. Pushing the kernel lock at the VFS border and all their syscalls that matter can already be done and should already help. So I no reason to wait. Questions. Uh, I don't have any questions for them, but I think 
this is a this is a great article exposing some of the internals that are making OpenBSD faster. Um, and maybe this stuff will land for seven point one. But I think the flame graphs are a great sign of um, results from the dynamic tracing work they've been doing in in OpenBSD. So I don't think without dynamic tracing they would have been able to. Uh, do this analysis to figure out where things were stuck. And so it's really interesting to see one project sparking another project and it performing, uh, leading to performance improvements. Yeah. Performance races are always good for the users as long as stability is ensured and nothing else as a side effect. But definitely focusing on the performance side is, is benefiting everyone, less waiting. Great. Uh, then we move on to our Beastie Bits this week. We collected a couple of things for you. Uh, first thing is the Plan 9 desktop guide. So that has a couple of things, how to run Plan 9 as a desktop. And they list a lot of things that a typical desktop needs. First of all, the explanation, what is Plan 9, and some of the limitations and workarounds. But they start with the basics like window management, copy and pasting, and some uh, like having multiple workspaces. Then they go into system administration and then jump into automation. That's also uh, interesting on the Plan 9 system. And then they list the usual things that a desktop requires, uh, a web browser, multimedia, uh, graphics, peripherals, like your USB sticks or some other uh, things like printers, uh, games and other fun stuff has a section. There's Office uh, and the whole article is well worth a read because they have a lot of examples there and a couple of screenshots in between to see how it looks like. And you will definitely find some interesting stuff that you could maybe use on your BSD system as well, or try it out on your uh, freshly installed Plan 9 system. Uh, then next we have uh, the Vert, LibVirt and Dragonfly BSD. So that's over at the Dragonfly BSD Digest. And it lets us know that if LibVirt running with NVMM on Dragonfly interests you, watch this bug report and the bug report will give you details about it. And so it seems that they are on a good path to get there. Uh, next, we have a, a beastie bit from uh, undeadly.org, the OpenBSD journal. This one comes from the infinitely interesting replays department. Uh, and they are giving us a pointer to the OpenBSDCon 2021 videos. And they say, uh, EuroBSDCon 2021 uh, was held virtually earlier this month. Videos of the presentations are now available, and there's a link to a YouTube playlist, I hope. Yep, YouTube playlist. Uh, amongst the OpenBSD-related open presentations is the one by Mark Espy, SPAT, Debug Packages in OpenBSD. Uh, I, I also spoke. Uh, did, you, did you speak, Benedict? Uh, no, I was uh, not even watching some of the videos. I was too busy. Uh, but now that they are available, I can do that on a rainy weekend. I highly recommend you watching anything but mine. Uh, I think Alan. I think Alan gave a talk. <laughs> uh, Alan was definitely around, and so yeah, there's there's some great stuff that happened. Um, there were a few replays from the previous EuroBSD con, um, but yeah, it was it was a, a really fun weekend actually, and it was it's good to almost get back together with people. Yeah, hopefully next year they plan. They still plan to do it in uh, Vienna, and so maybe in person. This the third time's the charm. The charm, as we say. Uh, um, yeah, good luck to the organizers and hopefully we will be able to do this in, uh, in physical form again. Cool. So having that as a little, uh, you know, bridge into the next year's, uh, conference is good to, to see that work is still going on. Uh, then we have some new things. Uh, there is, uh, issue number one of the OpenBSD website. 
uh, this was is a project done by volunteers who are passionate about the OpenBSD project development, and it's a web magazine of sorts with well OpenBSD of course, and they seem to provide uh, issues, and this is the issue number one. Hopefully there will be many more, and so there's plenty of stuff you can find in there about OpenBSD. For example, artworks of the moment or funny quotes and, uh, you know, the news from what OpenBSD is currently uh, working on. Yeah, and, and I've seen that uh, issue two has appeared. So I think there's going to be a, a series of these coming out quite rapidly. Ah, excellent. So if you have uh, OpenBSD and want to know more about it, then check out the website. Yeah, next we have a, a tweet from Edmaster, the FreeBSD project uh, and FreeBSD Foundation. And, and he writes, um, quotes, that's it. The beastie has landed champagne tonight. After being maintained out of tree for more than 15 years, Valgrind FreeBSD support finally lands upstream. Huge thanks to Paul Floyd for picking this up and pushing it across the finish line. And then he links to a bug on the KDE bug tracker that was opened in 2009 and, and continues for a long time. It's great to see uh, upstream support finally get there. Yeah, sometimes we let things rot or stay there too long. Um... But some people have a longer breath than others. And so it's great to see that it's got uh, pushed over the finish line. And so we have it now and can make use of it because Valgrind is still useful to find these nasty little memory bugs that seem to plague certain software. And so it's now easy to have it uh, yeah, and, officially and, and supported. So, so support out of tree uh, has been in place for a long time. I mean, it, it, there has been support for 15 years, but it not being in Valgrind means it's not in their um, continuous integration. And so it's not tested and so i think it was working for quite a long time and then it broke one day and there just wasn't the developer effort on the freebsd side to fix it and win the fight to like get stuff back up but yeah paul did the work and it's, it's finally landed and it's, it's great news uh next we have it's 1998 and you are sun microsystems Ooh, is this the story of a nightmare or of a <laughs> of a happy ending story uh the tweet uh, uh the tweet has a little thread uh, attached to it um, but it starts with it's 1998 and you are some microsystems there's an asteroid named linux on a collision course is there any strategy you can take which results in a 2021 where solaris persists and your company is still a dominant powerhouse of technology or was an extinction extinction inevitable and then a couple of people replied and provided their viewpoints so it's definitely nice to read what people uh provided and uh, of a possible future if things went differently. Uh, so check out that on Twitter and yeah, some of the results and you can probably still join and reply with your story of the event. Ah, and, and one of the, the follow-ups is um, a proposal by Larry McVoy, the Sourceware Operating System Proposal. Uh, and here is a, a document put together in 1993 uh, when Larry was at Sun uh, describing strategies that Sun and also other Unix vendors could um, strategies that they could follow to compete against um, Microsoft and Windows NT, which was seen as the future. And a couple of things they talk about is the scrappiness of, of Linux and how it is really nice and small. And he offers some paths that um, Sun could have followed um, to, to, to deal with this exact problem. Uh, so it's, it's a really good read. Um, it has the excellent phrase, um, Unix is dying, which should just always be on t-shirts. Uh, <laughs> there was a proposal, you know, to, to make um, Unix smaller 
which I thought was really funny to read because I, I read Make Unix Smaller and all I could think is, well, today we have um, Lightning HDMI cables that are running, you know, um, the the mock operating system. They're running a tiny Unix um, and we have big Unix and small Unix everywhere. And so we sort of followed all these steps, but Sun didn't get to follow all these steps. Um, and so if you have like half an hour, it's great to go and pull this um, article out from the show notes and read it. Mm. Yeah, I mean the company is not there anymore, but the people are, and the ideas kept um, carrying on, and they continued to work in, in smaller form or in smaller teams in other companies. So the rays of sun are still yeah, shining. Like, I would say one, one strategy <laughs> he suggested was that um, Sun should license their, their Unix, like all Unix, um, with like an almost copyright li left license, which helps business, <laughs> which, which we got sort of in the form of the CDDL. Um, because Sun doesn't care about um, selling an operating system, they sell about se they care about selling Spark. Um, right. Uh, of course, this is written the complete like contemporary with the Java efforts, so they never thought, "Oh yeah, Sun wants to sell Java." Um, but yeah, it's it's a really good read. Um, all these things happened; they just didn't happen by the people that would have been saved by them. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so after you've finished reminiscing in the past, uh, we can look at more recent things like the uh, last item that we have here. The RSA SHA1 signature type is disabled by default now in OpenSSH. Big and important to know for your SSH server. Um, uh, again, at OpenBSD Journal, letting us know in the, from the really senile algorithms department uh, in a message to uh, tech at OpenBSD, Damien Miller explained the consequences of his recent commit. Uh, RSA slash SHA1, aka the SSH-RSA signature type, is now disabled by default in OpenSSH. While the SSH protocol confusingly uses overlapping names for key and signature algorithms, this does not stop the use of RSA keys, and there is no need to regenerate that SSH-RSA keys. Most servers released in the last five years will automatically negotiate the use of RSA, SHA-256, and 512 uh, signatures. This has been coming for a long time, but I do expect it will be disruptive for most people, or some at least, as there are likely to be some devices out there that cannot be upgraded to support the safer algorithms. In these cases, it is possible to selectively re-enable RSA SHA1 support by specifying the pubkey accepted algorithms uh, variable to allow SSH-RSA in the SSH config file or your SSHD config for the server. Please report any problems again to uh, box or to open SSH at. Cool. Uh, it's always good to have uh, old and insecure algorithms disabled. I just need to check my own servers whether I can still log in. <laughs> ED255 for the win. <laughs> uh, was it was it that curve? Uh, anyway, uh, you know what I mean. Uh, good that this is uh, happening and OpenBSD keeps improving. And we'll see other algorithms probably happening uh, soon. Okay, before we go into our feedback and question section, which is very popular with the audience, we should mention that people sponsor us and the good people at Tarsnap are the ones that sponsored this episode. And for those people who think, hey, what's Tarsnap? Uh, why haven't I heard from it? Well, they keep a low profile, but they are quite good in their the things they provide. They provide an online backup. 
not any type of online backup, but a paranoid online backup. Paranoid in regards that first you can look into the source code and see if there are any hidden backdoors or something is wrong in there. So for the people who are really into the nitty-gritty details can look at that. But Tarsnap does a couple of things different also in its design that other backup services don't necessarily do. So the online backups here are done first by creating a local key that is your key to the castle, to your files, and then your files are that you want to back up, segmented, duplicated, deduplicated to make them smaller first. Then they are compressed, even smaller, depending on the type of files. And then they are encoded and encrypted locally on your disk. They don't leave your system yet. They don't go on the network until they are encrypted. And once they are encrypted, then they are stored on the Tarsnap services uh, server and they reside on AWS in encrypted form, and then they wait, and then they wait, maybe sometimes they get an update because you back up more data, or sometimes you need to access them, and then the reverse happens. As soon as, or as long as you still have your key, then it's downloaded, and then locally unencrypted, and the process is reversed to get the original files uh, back, and that way, Tarsnap provides a very secure service because no one on the server side, wherever they end up in the cloud, can look at those files. Well, they can look at it, but it's just gibberish. They can't understand anything because it's encrypted. And as soon as you are the key holder, and that should be the, the, the default, that the key should never leave your hands or your disk or your uh, secure backup, then you can get your files back. So whatever you need to backup, uh, Tarstep is a good solution for that, even if it's small files and you charge it with um, a pay-as-you-go pay model. So you charge your account up for maybe like $5 to start with if you only have a couple of PDFs, for example, to back up. And then uh, when uh, over time your backup space is uh, being used up or your funds get used up, they send you an email beforehand, not after, uh, so that you need to provide more money. But you can also simulate how much it would cost for a certain amount of um, gigabytes to back up. And you will find that this is not too costly for especially big amounts of uh, data because they have a very competitive pricing model. And so it's not just for the very rich people to back up their software, it's for everyone. Check out Tarsnap and the clients it provides. And so you will find that it's a very good solution to make backups early and securely. All right, let's go into feedback and questions this week. We receive feedback and questions from you constantly on our feedback and questions at, well, well <laughs> email address. Uh, feedback at bsdnow.tv is the address. I should know by now, right? Doing so many <laughs> of these. <laughs> but um, anything that you want to let us know, uh, comments, show ideas, questions like the ones we're going to read now, or um, something uh, about our Patreon that you uh, find what, what, what your reaction to that was. So first one is Dan with an IPFS question. So let's check this out. Uh, Dan writes, hi, Alan, Benedict, JT, and Tom. Tom, this is probably a networking question for you. Excellent that you are on the show right now. Uh, <laughs> thank you very much, regardless, if you decide to answer it in the show. Okay, so it reads, in the last episode, you and Benedict spoke about IPFS and you mentioned that OpenBSD developer has issues uh, with a DSL with too many connections. This is completely off topic since I would like to ask about the network about handling too many connections. I too have problems with my DSL with some applications that create a lot of connections. Is this something that can be solved by VPN? Maybe WireGuard VPN from my OpenWRT router to VPS in DigitalOcean? 
The VPS definitely won't have problems with many connections, but I'm not sure if encapsulating it into a single VPN tunnel makes things better or worse. Yeah, I don't know. I've been, I've been thinking about this all day. Um, maybe? It, it really depends on the nature of the problems you have and, and what they stem from. Um, it seems really unlikely to me that it is your wireless router that is the problem with loads of connections. Uh, it might be if it is just replace it. It, it might be that it's your DSL modem that's the problem with loads of connections. Um, I would replace that first if you can. Um, definitely worth, worth speaking to your ISP about this. One possible issue might be that your ISP is using carrier grade NAT, um, so CG NAT. So you, you never get a public V4 or V6 address or you're getting some sort of weird tunnel. And so when your um, applications are making loads of connections, they're carrier grade NAT is, is running out of mappings and so things are breaking. Um, it, I don't know if the applications need to make all these connections. They might not need to make all these connections. Uh, I know web browsers using like um, HTTP 1.1 will use um, like six or 12 TCP connections um, based on uh, CDN resource distribution, but maybe 12 connections when you're speaking to a web page. Uh, this allows you to download stuff, uh, not a higher bit rate, but perceived faster. So you get the information sooner because you're not waiting on pending connections. And if some of those broke, that wouldn't mean your session didn't work. It would just mean there might be stalls and so you wouldn't have resources coming through. So if, if that is the sort of problem you have, then the easy solution is to just, um, you could use a firewall like IPFW, probably PF, you can just set a limit to a number of connections on a port you can do at once, and that could stop the application. And so it might not be a web browser if it's the problem. I, I doubt it is. It's probably more like a backup application. You can just limit the number of connections it can make because it might have knock-on effects to your other connections. Um, and if speaking to your ISP and then firewalling doesn't solve these problems, and yeah, setting up a VPN for the traffic is, is definitely a solution, but it seems really odd to me to spend uh, an extra five dollars a month um spinning up a uh like a vps and like a, a droplet in digital ocean just to fix your internet i would go and shout at my isp especially if you can show them what's going on you might have trouble getting through support to begin with but i think if you say like um i use this application and it has trouble is, is a great way to get help um too many connections is such a weird one but yeah um i if you think one connection is fine but 40 connections is a problem then tunneling all of them to a, a with a VPN of any sort is probably okay because then the traffic appears as as one stream. What you can get though is ISPs will treat um, like IPsec traffic and UDP traffic. They'll give it um, constant bitrate treatment, and so rather than uh, because they can't look into what the traffic is because it is encrypted or encapsulated in a way they don't know how to take apart. Um, what they will do instead is they'll bucket their traffic into a constant bitrate. And so it might be fine for all your test use cases. And then when you come to use it, you're getting um, CBR treatment. And so you're not getting good prioritization. You're getting stuff dropped uh, or you're getting a lot of delay and you're getting reordering. So you might just expose other issues. Uh, I would speak to your ISP though, because they'll be able to tell you why they aren't doing their job very well. Isn't there also a way to, it could also be that the connections are there, but they are not closed too quickly. So they stay open way longer than they should be. So can't we, isn't there a way in IP or in PF to prioritize the acknowledgements 
so that the oh, yeah. app close gets gets faster. Yeah, there are. There is a I think so. There's a tutorial in the uh, PF uh, page on the uh, on OpenBSD that you can definitely carry over into other like FreeBSD PF. Uh, so that acknowledges or that prioritizes the acknowledgements, the ACK packages. And so that if an uh, application closes the connection, you, you do the three-way handshake and then the ACKs will get uh, priority between the other packets. And that could cause the connections to be closed. Yeah, quicker. and, and there's, there's other stuff. I mean, um, if the issue isn't that like connections break and are flaky, but instead um, what you have are um, high bitrate flows. So you have like... Um, if you are doing, um, so if we're doing the constant bitrate bit video right now, it's adaptive. So Benedict and I are using Skype, um, but this will squeeze out other traffic. This is the reason that I can't, um, when I'm at home, normally I'm not at home right now. When I'm at home, this is the reason I can't um, stream video. That's why we're not doing live videos yet until my internet gets better at home because there's just nothing on the return pipe. And so the delays get very high. Um, and so you can actually deploy um, packet scheduling at the bottleneck um and, and i've written an article for clara that should appear eventually that can explain how you can do this um but without knowing what the actual problem is there's there's like seven or eight solutions we've offered now but without knowing what the problem mm. is it's really hard to say uh but it definitely sounds like a problem with your isp and you should tell them off yeah otherwise try to isolate the application like stop services yeah. and then find out what's the one that's sending too many open requests yeah, or and something and then you can pinpoint. And I set a firewall um, here, but a firewall can easily be running on your device. Um, assuming it's not Windows, um, every Unix operating system, including macOS, has really great firewalling built in. And you can easily have the firewall do the bottleneck for you when you're at home. Um, and so it could do scheduling for mm -hmm. you. And you can easily set it up so your traffic will get better treatment um, by just artificially moving the issue closer to you so you can then do the right behavior. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, hopefully that gave you a couple of hints to uh, resolve this. Let us know if there's uh, if problems went away or are persisting, then we can try a follow-up. Um, next one is Jack, and they seem to point point into the same uh, direction as Dan did, uh, because he also has a question about the IPFS. I love IPFS. And this, yeah, it's popular. It's, it seems like the episode we did there was, was popular, and so we got a lot of feedback about it. Like this one. The Island Benedict, Tom, and JT. Thank you very much for your excellent show and for giving people opportunity to ask questions. Ah, you're welcome. That won't change anytime soon. You have always our open ears and we're interested in your kind of problems that you have. If we can provide a solution and help, why not? So in episode 414, Tom and I discussed the article about IPFS. Is that something you have experience with? For a long time, I'm after self-replicating open source file systems. Okay, my needs are. Uh, first, needs to be file-based, not block storage-based, like uh, a NAS, not a SAN. Multiple hosts are replicating files between each other with automatic failover. Uh, it works as an abstraction on top of the normal file system. In other words, in case of the failure, you can recover files simply by copying them from ZFS or ext4. Uh, not some crazy complicated monstrosity like Ceph or Hadoop. Ah, I was getting at that. Okay, uh, access the storage via NFS or anything else that works and can be installed on Linux and BSD, Windows and macOS support is not needed. Okay, I tried a few file systems like that, but I always had some issues and reverted back to simply use ZFS and send snapshots between multiple hosts. GlusterFS is probably the best, but what about IPFS? Is it possible to use it like this? I, I 
don't think this is the intended use case of IPFS. I think you could definitely use IPFS like this, but I, I think maybe you'd have performance issues. Um, a friend of mine uses um, LizardFS on, on Linux. Never heard about that. On top of ZFS. Um, no, it's not on top of ZFS. So LizardFS allows him to run a storage cluster where he can present the entire set of um, storage devices as a single block and then configure redundancy between them. And then I think he's offered NFS on top of this. I, I'd have to ask him. Um, but I'm not really, I'm not sure if this is what you want because what this gives him is redundancy inside a cluster. Um, his cluster is running in uh, a church in, in Italy, a nunnery in Italy right now, and it keeps being turned off by lightning storms. Uh, and it's been resilient to all these power failures. It's been fine. Um, but it's not been falling over in the mode you're talking about where uh, you probably have like distinct sites you want to have failover for. Uh, I've never used any of the ZFS uh, replication stuff, but ZREPL is pretty highly recommended. I think, do you not use that, Benedict? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's the one. And there's uh, there's other solutions that do similar things, but I think ZREPL is the uh, most advanced uh, at this point, as far yeah, as I can so tell. So maybe um, automation on top of ZFS is actually what you want rather than um, something really complicated. Because I think you'd easily turn into Ceph, right? And Ceph is, do you use Ceph or Hadoop, Benedict? Uh, so uh, actually both. So Hadoop more in the um, big data space, uh, not to store data too much, but like store the results of the Hadoop ca calculations there. And Ceph more for, uh, yeah, the big data or the having a big storage available on like a virtual machine. Uh, but Ceph is complicated. I'm, I'm I'm just the consumer. Other people administer that, but uh, it seems to work. And uh, but it is definitely complicated to set up and, and run. Uh, this, this feels like one of those spaces where you need, um, oh, I don't think of an example, like maybe something that would have appeared on like Dan's blog back in the day, Dan Langle's blog, like um, uh, here's how to roll out of the box a replication system. And so it's like straightforward enough that it's like a couple thousand words of blog post, but it's not a nightmare to look after once you've set it up. Cause you really quickly get things that are a nightmare to deal with once you've got them running. Yeah. I mean, if it's, there's plenty of file synchronization solutions out there, starting with, I mean, rsync do this up to, I don't know, Nextcloud. Um, so, but the requirements here are mostly about redundancy and involving multiple machines, not about speed or capacity. So I think that's, that's possible to do. Uh, if anyone else out there knows about this or has, has this running, has built this, uh, then let us know and we'll be happy to link to this back and discuss your solutions here on the show because that's definitely interesting for a lot of people i i, I think there's a, a definite need always for um so sometimes people have expertise and they don't realize they have it and they, they can write like a really short article which is you know uh if i was just doing like a, a throwaway thing i was looking after for my friend um here's how i would do it uh, and I, I think there's always a need for that yeah. and so if you if you can write this then we're happy to talk about it because it's the sort of stuff we cover and you don't have to be perfect. Um, you get the best feedback by showing stuff to the world. Um, yeah. And if you have provide config examples, I mean, they speak for themselves mostly. You don't need to provide too much <laughs> uh, text around it as explanation. I mean, there's a lot of sysadmins out there very quietly doing great stuff and don't talk about it ever. And that's kind yeah, of a loss for the rest of the world. It's the sort of things that feel um, unsexy and 
definitely the sort of things you would struggle to fill like a, a 45 minute like conference talk with um but there's some of the there's some of the best stories i'm missing from in-person conferences like oh yeah i spam one of those up and you're like <laughs> yeah that's what i'm running and it's very good and you only hear this in the hallway yeah, track and not in the big you're you know, at the cake storage section like i built a video streaming system for that and you're like no no, no stop you've done something amazing tell me more <laughs> really we need to talk we need to eat together and ah, okay. sit together <laughs> so we have a, a final question from um from johnny k uh johnny writes hi guys love the show i have a question for the author of advance bsd there's an exclamation point in there so i had to exclaim uh, nonprofit. I wonder if this person knows about uh, SDF.org. It's a nonprofit that does many of the things this individual is looking for. And SDF has been around for a really long time now. And I know they're always open for various new project ideas and they already offer VPS services among others. I have an account with SDF.org, but other than that, I don't have, I have no other affiliation with them. I don't like the Linux Chimera idea. It would be very hard for the end user to get support upstream since it's not truly a Linux distro or FreeBSD. It's similar to FreeBSD using, uh, similar to Debian using the FreeBSD kernel, which I don't think has a very big user base. I just don't see it going anywhere without full support for both systems. Anyway, love the show and can't wait for the next one. Johnny K. Uh, Benedict, I don't know what this question's about, so I think it's a show I wasn't on. Uh, yeah, it's probably one that I did with Alan. So um, the sdf.org provides basically a free Unix shell account for people who don't have one or <laughs> since 1987, they, they Fun say. Fun fact, it was the second um, Unix system I had a, yeah. a, an account on. Yeah, and this page was created using corn shell set and AWK because- Why, why not use awk in uh, your blog? Complicated stuff. <laughs> yeah, so um, yeah, it's, good. It's, it's definitely good to have this feedback from, from an earlier episode. Um, yeah, so advanced BSD, I haven't heard much from them recently, but maybe we should uh, check their website for an update. Uh, but yeah, it's probably connecting the two uh, better together. And so uh, that's really cool. Yeah, I was good, um, good feedback. So before we interviewed um, Michael W. Lucas, I listened to some of his interviews and he was interviewed on BSD Talk, uh, which is a podcast that ran from 2006 to 2015 or so. Uh, they interviewed BSD people. Oh, yeah. Um, and for some reason, I don't know why, I listened to an interview with uh, SMJ, um, Stephen Jones, who runs SDF. Uh, and my email address on sdf.org oh. is jones at so i used to get his email but thankfully i don't anymore um people <laughs> email me rather than him you have to provide support um, i listened to his interview talking about um <laughs> how the system was i guess in like 2009 and it was, it was really interesting going like all the way back in time and listening to this interview uh yeah it's, it's always good just to even read our own <laughs> it's good to hear our own contemporary history and, and hear what's going on yeah yeah and uh yeah it's good to try this out on uh yeah, great stuff, uh, definitely. All right, uh, that's it for now. Uh, we should still mention that we are trying to do a uh, listeners interview the uh, hosts of or the, the BSD Now crew. Uh, so if you want to see this happening, then we need questions from you. Send these to feedback at bsdnow.tv also, but provide a subject of maybe um, interview questions for BSD now or something as a subject so we can find them. And then we have, uh, when we have enough collected together, we will do a special episode just answering your questions that are uh, burning under your fingernails. Until next time, see you and stay well.